0: We continue with our worship this morning with the reading of Scripture. It's been said that our attitude toward the Word of God reveals our attitude about the God of the Word. If you're able to stand, please do at this time. The Scripture reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, and continues through Acts chapter 5, verse 11. Hear now the Word of God. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, and they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of God. May he bless it to our hearts. You may be seated.
1: If you know somebody that has experienced something uh, traumatic, or if you have experienced something traumatic in your life, you know, you go about kind of your your day-to-day, and, you know, lots of good things happen, but then when there's this, really significant thing that imposes itself on your life people the response that people give tends to be the same thing when you talk to someone and you say wow you know how are you doing you know after this happened to your wife or your child and things like that they say something to the effect of boy you really you really start to understand what's important in life right isn't that kind of that common response is It just, all at once, everything gets pared down to you realize what's actually important. And in this text, when we see what happens with Ananias and Sapphira, we see that ultimately that's what takes place with the church. This is a sobering experience. And... What makes it really difficult to read, to digest, to think through, is the fact that this trauma, this tragedy that takes place, really is a matter of discipline. Now, I pointed out before, you know, and the analogy that I used was kind of that was that term, the grand opening. We see the beginning of the church and how God is working in a in a special way, and He's being uh, what, what seems to be more demonstrative at the very front end of creating the church, of getting the church. Off the ground of this change from the age of the temple to the age of the church. And we've seen that, um, you know, there, there's this healing taking place with the apostles. There's the, the reception of the Holy Spirit in this incredible way through Pentecost. We see uh, conversions taking place in mass, in, uh, you know 2,000 people in, in one day and then 5,000 at another time. We see that when they get together to pray, the Holy Spirit fills the room and the walls are being shaken. There are tremendous sacrifices that are taking place. We saw that the full number of those that were believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, and they had everything in common. This is just incredible, all that's going on in this really big way as the church is being created. But we have the first, as the church is beginning to, in, the, in these early stages, we have the first sin in the church. Now, we know for a fact, of course, that it isn't the first person, once the church has gotten off the ground, that, that, that has sinned. But this is the first time in Acts where we see explicitly a sin that God judges, and that he judges thoroughly. He judges completely, and he judges immediately. Again, we see this demonstrative response by God. It's that other side of how he was demonstrative in a positive way in creating the church. He's demonstratively demonstratively disciplining Ananias and Sapphira. And it's not the first time that he's done something like that. You know, in the Old Testament, of course, there's Aaron's sons, right? They offered strange fire and... uh, that didn't last long. You know, God struck them down instantly by sending fire on Nadab and Abihu. And then if you'll also recall when um, they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant and then Uzzah reached out to stable it, uh, to or actually I believe it was being pulled by, uh, being pulled by some, some cattle and then he reached out to steady it. And the second he touched it, boop, God disciplined him thoroughly, completely, comprehensively, immediately, and he died right there. And you'll recall as well the response in each of those cases. When Nadab and Abihu were killed by fire, Aaron was Aaron was just flabbergasted. What just happened? And he goes to Moses. His first response is, what just happened? How can this be? And in the same way, after Uzzah reached out and touched the ark of the covenant and he was killed instantly David's response was very similar Lord what's going on we, you know what what just happened and there's that sense of instantaneous sobriety about what it is to be God's child and how we should respond to what he's told us to to do who it is that we are to be now the purpose in general with any church discipline um, as it's outlined in the New Testament in in a general sense is that, first of all, it's for the purity of the church, right? I mean, we we exercise, if it comes to it, we exercise church discipline so that we maintain the purity of the the church and so that we maintain the health of the church. Um, You know, we even have a membership. It's not it's not nearly as common as it used to be for churches to even have a membership. And we believe that it is a biblical thing to have a membership for the purpose of maintaining a local congregation that we know who it is that the leadership is accountable for and to maintain some level of purity within the church, which is why we hold membership classes and why we have membership interviews so that to the best of our knowledge, We, when we as a church vote somebody in to be a member of the church, we are saying we believe these people, this person, to be a believer, to be a child of God. The best that we can tell, that's what's going on. And the reason that we're doing that at its most basic level is we're trying to maintain the purity of the church. And any time that church discipline Goes the full distance and ends up resulting in excommunication is because ultimately we are told to treat that person as an unbeliever. In other words, we're trying to maintain the purity of the church and they're put outside the congregation in the sense of saying, No, it would appear that you are unrepentant of your sin, therefore the end of this road of church discipline as far as we the church has any control is that you are being put out, you are being excommunicated, and so therefore you are being treated as an unbeliever. And God here is taking this church discipline to the end of the line instantaneously. So he is purifying the church and this has a, a healthy outcome as well. Even for those that remain in the church, that have to unfortunately participate in church discipline and and perhaps one day even vote to excommunicate someone for being unrepentant in their sin, that has a positive effect on the entirety of the church because everyone realizes the danger of sin. It is very sobering. If you've ever participated in that kind of process, it is very sobering when you're thinking, wow, I'm participating as a voting member to put someone out of the church and it automatically causes you to reflect on your own sin and to take care about the seriousness of what it is to be a Christian the seriousness of our call so the kind of the the answer to the big question or the big why of what it is that happened to Ananias and Sapphira you know in a, a straightforward or a simple way it's the purity and the health of the church, and it brings glory to God. Church discipline brings glory to God. God's judgment, both in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, here where we're reading this, and ultimately on Judgment Day, all of that brings glory to God. It's His justice that's taking place and so that the answer to the kind of the overarching or big question of why did this happen to Ananias and Sapphira is because it glorifies God because it maintains a purity in the church and actually has a resulting healthy fruit that comes from that as well but when we dig a little deeper maybe we want to know what 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 I would call the smaller why which is so what exactly did they do wrong what was it that cost them Their lives. And scripture actually gives us a surprising amount of detail to work with. Rob Roy read the end here of Acts chapter 4, and before we got into the beginning of Acts chapter 5, where it talks about Ananias and Sapphira. And specifically those last two verses give us an example of a one person over and against Ananias and Sapphira. So we have kind of a classic compare and contrast. Now, the first person here, Barnabas, only gets two verses. And Ananias and Sapphira, what happens to them, you'll see, gets a full 11. But even in the two verses that are committed to Barnabas, we actually learn quite a bit. First of all, his name is actually Joseph, but he's tight with the apostles. So that says something right there, is that he's, he's got an in with the apostles. In fact, he's so close to the apostles, they give him a different name. You know you have to be close to someone if they're giving you a different name. And they give him the name of Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. That's not so bad. If you're in close with the apostles and the apostles say, hey, I, we got a different name for you, and that name means son of encouragement, boy, you're doing okay. We also know here that he was a Levite, that he's from Cyprus, which means that he's like uh, that. It's likely that he's widely known to both Jews and Gentiles. That even if he wasn't serving in an official capacity before at the temple, that he probably is wealthy. He's probably wide, widely known. And what we're seeing through this is he's promoting. The, um, the, the mission that is taking place in the growth of the church. So he's, he's a, a major player for this early church. And so in just one verse, we get this sense of who he is and that he is being honored because he did, nothing here indicates that he did anything whatsoever to draw attention to himself. It's Luke in Acts that's describing what's going on and giving Barnabas credit. And we see uh, that he's getting credit for who he is, and then in that next verse, in chapter four, verse 37, what it is that he did. What did he do? He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The whole idea of laying it at the apostles' feet is the sense that he's not deciding, hey, this is where I'd like the money to go. He's bringing it, he did something significant, he's got this, uh, uh, this amount of money and he's like here, I want this, you use this as you see fit to promote and expand the kingdom of God. Now, when we think about Ananias and Sapphira, what's interesting is that they, too, sold a piece of property, and they, too, laid the money at the apostles' feet. So, so far, it, it looks about the same. They sacrificed something of worth they took the proceeds from that, and they gave it to the apostles without any expectation or without any demands of where that money might go. And the problem isn't even that they didn't give all of their money to the apostles. Remember, I even brought up last week when we were looking at the fact that everybody had in common, and I made the the comment that um, this wasn't a, a, you know, a, a communist thing or a, a, there wasn't socialism involved because that, would require, that, that involves a requirement from an outside force to say, you're going to give, but instead they did all of this out of, the, out of grace, out of the love that they had in their heart and the desire to see the kingdom expand. And so nothing has changed here. With Ananias and Sapphira, the apostles are not saying, you're supposed to give us everything. It isn't that they didn't give it all that was the problem. The problem, instead, is that, in fact, well, in fact, I wanted to point out as well, we don't know that Barnabas also gave everything that he had. I just wanted to point out here that it says uh, back here in Acts 4, it says in verse 37 that he sold a field that belonged to him. So it's not like that. it says, you know, for all we know, he, sold, he, knew, he owned many fields and he just took one of them and sold it. I mean, maybe he only owned a field. But the point being is that, yes, he made a significant sacrifice, but it's possible that he had more. It doesn't say that he sold all that he had and took it to the apostles. And so we have Ananias and Sapphira who also sold a field, and it isn't necessarily a problem that they didn't give every penny that they had from it. The problem is that where we start to see in verses three and four, we see that Ananias, like Judas, had Satan enter his heart. Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. Ananias contrived to what it was that they were going to do. So that, at the outset, means he premeditated. Whatever's about to happen, it was all planned ahead. This was not a last-second decision. He contrived, and then it says again that he lied to God. And then when you get down to Sapphira in verses 7 and 8, we know that all of this was done completely with her knowledge. In fact, earlier in, uh, I believe it was verse 2, it says, uh, let me start at verse 1, a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property, verse 2, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it. And then you get down to verse verses 7 and 8, where Sapphira enters the scene, and even though this was contrived, this was all premeditated, that what they were perpetrating was thought of, it was preplanned, and that Sapphira knew about it, Peter still gave her the opportunity to separate herself from it. She knew it ahead, but Peter asks, okay, did you pay such and such? At that moment, she had the opportunity to say, no, that's not the truth. That's not what she did. Instead, what she did is she confirmed her complicity in the plan, her commitment to the lie, and then we see in verse 9, Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? That's is an accusation." Peter adds to all those things that happened with Ananias the accusation that the two of you together have agreed to test the Holy Spirit. So the answer to, for us to be able to get to the answer of that little why of, okay, what is it that they did? I would say when we look at what they were accused of, the question then is, in what way did they premeditatively lie to God and test the spirit? And the answer is that they demonstrated a hypocrisy that was fed, that was undergirded, that was underpinned by greed and ego. They were simultaneously covetous and presumptuous. And I want to show you how I have drawn that connection. If you remember the story of Achan, it took place back in Joshua chapter seven. And in that account, Joshua is leading the country. This is right after they have had this tremendous um, success in, um, at Jericho, the walls came a-tumbling down and all seems to be going well. And then the next battle that they're going to engage in is this little insignificant town, Ai, right? So they don't even bother sending the full force, military force, to attack this city. They just dispatch, uh, you know, an attachment. Hey, just go take care of these people. But instead of having victory, they were routed. They were defeated which Joshua knew immediately that that was a problem, that they were defeated. And so Joshua launches into an investigation to say, what is going on that we were routed here at this little insignificant town? The answer to the investigation was that there was a guy named Achan who had sinned, who had stolen things and kept them from himself, even though they were told specifically to destroy everything. And I want to read to you Joshua 7, verse 1, where it says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of Yahweh burned against the people of Israel. Here's the reason I'm pointing out this specific Account in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word that's used in verse 1 of Joshua 7, not for took some of the devoted things, but for broke faith, where it says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, is the same word that is used in Acts. 5 and verse 2 that says he kept back for himself. The Old Testament is using a word to describe infidelity, to describe unfaithfulness by Achan that led to him stealing these things, directly breaking the command to destroy those things that resulted in a theft. And because of greed, Achan stole instead of destroying that. And we have back in Acts chapter five, this same word where Ananias and Sapphira pre-planned this theft. They also kept back for themselves these things. Their greed led to unfaithfulness. Their greed led them to formulate a plan To lie to God and misrepresent how much they gave. So they've lied, they've stolen, they're hypocritical, and it gets worse. In addition to all of this and the fact that it's all been premeditated, they presumptuously tested the Lord. Now I know that it's a lot more straightforward to talk about lying and to talk about theft um, we're very familiar with hypocrites. <laughs> we, we, we know what it is to be a hypocrite, but what does it mean to presumptuously test the Lord? Well, we get plenty of examples in Scripture. I'm just going to point out a couple of them. And that is the, well, I don't want to, I don't know about the sin. It is one of the primary sins that the Israelites demonstrated in the wilderness and I want to point those out to you. So in Numbers, I'm sorry, in, uh, in Exodus 17, in the first three verses, this is where they're getting thirsty, and so now they want to demand that God provide them water, and they're very angry with Moses, and this is how it's This is how it's recorded, Exodus 17, verses 1 to 3. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of Yahweh, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They had, think about the fact that these are the people that had repeatedly experienced the supernatural intervention of an all-powerful God. These are the people that had formerly been enslaved, that experienced walking through the Red Sea on dry land, that saw their enemies destroyed, that have have already received the manna, that have gotten water out of a rock on a previous account, um, that God has provided so much for them in an incredible way and their response was to grumble, was to quarrel with God and then to make a demand. We see this again in Numbers 14, verses 20 to 23. Now, in this account, in Numbers, this is where the 10 spies, or well, the 12 spies, are sent to spy out the land, and 10 of them bring back a bad report. And then in Numbers 14, verses 20 to 23, it says, Then Yahweh said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly, As I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs. You see what's going on here? They have seen things about God in a supernatural way. They have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. Even though they had experienced these amazing acts of God, things that throughout Scripture refer to God working with a mighty right arm. I mean, the, the songs that are written about what it is that God accomplished, they were there, they saw it. And instead of responding with humility, instead of responding with trust, they put God to the test. And in fact, did you notice here in, um, uh, in these verses, it was equated to despising God. It says, uh, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. The connection between testing the Lord, acting presumptuously toward him, is to despise God. They treated God as though he should jump when they complained. God needs to do something about this. And the other side of that presumption was that when they sinned against God, he wasn't going to do anything about it. That he would not discipline them when they sinned. I'm going to read to you two more passages that come out of Psalms, and I want you to listen for the pattern. You're going to see that the people received blessing, forgot what he did for them, then they demand something from him, obviously presuming that he's not going to judge them, and then actually he does judge them. So in Psalm 78, starting at verse 10, It says, They did not keep God's covenant but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. This is just going on to describe how he blessed them. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Verse 17, yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the most high in the desert. They tested God in their heart. And if you want to know what that means, it's the very... Second half of that sentence, by demanding the food they craved. They saw the amazing things that God had done. They forgot what it is that he had done. Then they demanded in their hearts the food that they craved. And then going down to verse 21, therefore, when Yahweh heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel. So you see this presumption that is taking place. Wow, we are so blessed. Why don't I have more? God, you need to do something about this with a complete presumptuous attitude that he will, one, do it, and two, not discipline for that attitude. Another example is out of Psalm 106, starting at verse 9. It says, he rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as, though, as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words, and they sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel verse 14 but had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert he gave them what they asked but they sent but sent a wasting disease among them do you see the pattern he did all of these amazing things rebuke the red sea save them from the hand of the foe Not one of their adversaries was left. They believed and sang his praise. Then they forgot his works and had a wanton craving. They put him to the test, and then he judged them. We see this pattern taking place. Now, in Acts 5, the people of Jerusalem are experiencing the supernatural birth of the church, the healing, the Holy Spirit conversion en mass, walls being shaken. We have these amazing things happen. People giving tremendous gifts for the expansion of the kingdom, for the benefit of the church. And what do Ananias and Sapphira do? They disregard what is clearly happening in front of them and deceitfully presume to receive some kind of benefit from what they're giving and at the same time with no fear of judgment whatsoever. They had a cavalier attitude about lying to God and testing Him, and it was met with an immediate, with a comprehensive, and with a final sentence. And this, in our world today, this is exactly the same sin that plagues our world. This is the same sin. We look at Ananias and Sapphira. And hopefully you are shocked, but when you think about the attitude that our world has about what God has accomplished, what he is doing, his creation right in front of them, what he has both created and what he sustains, it is the same affront. It is the same sin that's taking place. Christ has established the church. The church has gone out to virtually every corner of the world. The Bible, we have it in its entirety. It's been, it's been authored. It's been completed. It's basically available to almost anyone in the world. It's been translated into almost 3,000 languages, the truth of God's word. And yet the average person, at least the American, forget any of this, forget God's work, will not acknowledge God's goodness Take all of it for granted and instead make greedy demands and essentially say, well, yeah, but I'm thirsty. Yeah, but I'm hungry. Yeah, but I want more. I'm not going to submit to God because I want more. What has God done for me? What kind of a God do you serve? That's that's everyday American. This is who we work with. These are our neighbors that take everything that God's doing for granted and and have this cavalier, presumptuous attitude. And not only is there that sense of God, if he wants me, is going to have to jump to attention. He's going to have to give me something. He's going to have to woo me. He needs to win me over. In addition to that is that other half, that other side of presumption that says, I've got something good to offer. Who does God think he is that he would judge me? I've done good things. I love my mom. I've taken care of my grandparents. I've helped my neighbor. Surely God, if he really is that big and powerful, and if this is all true, is going to take all of that into account. And all of that is a sin of presumption. It's a cavalier attitude about God. Ananias and Sapphira brought something of value. They really did. They sold a piece of property and they brought it and they laid it at the apostles' feet. It was real property that produced real money that they offered to the apostles, so to the church. But here's the thing the very gift, gift, scare quotes, gift that they offered to the church is the thing that testified to their guilt, because they knew. They knew that this is what they should do. They Just like somebody saying, well, I've got good works. Why would you need any good works whatsoever? Because there is an all-powerful God that is going to keep track of sin if you don't have Christ. Giving a gift, thinking you have good works in any way, exposes the heart. It exposes that deceit. It exposes hypocrisy. It exposes greed. It exposes these sins of presumption. To fail to repent of all sin is to keep back for yourself, to use the, the verbiage out of this account, to keep back for yourself some of your sins. What sin are you refusing to repent of? What is it that you want to keep back for yourselves? See, when you keep those things back, in the context of Ananias and Sapphira, you go, well, it isn't that they had something positive to give. It's that in keeping something back, they demonstrated the greed, the hypocrisy, and the lying and testing the spirit. To fail to rely exclusively on Jesus for your salvation is to presume on God's mercy. And the question is, do you bet your life on it? Are you positive that your piddly good works are going to save you on judgment day? And the believer knows that that It can't possibly do that because there is, with Christianity, there is no middle ground. That is the power of this account. There is no middle ground. When you read Matthew 25, what do you see? There is right and there is left. There is sheep. There is goats. There is come you who are blessed by my Father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, or there is depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. No middle ground. No little bit Christian category. There is either come or there is depart. Those are the only orders that will take place by Christ when he is sitting on the throne on judgment, on judgment Day. So what can the Christian take from this account? I want to point out to you the response. So grab your Bibles and look at Acts 5. And when, this, when these things happened, look, look what we read here in verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Then go down to verses 10 and 11. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. See, the opposite of hypocrisy, the opposite of lying, the opposite of presumptuous sins, of testing the Lord, is to have a healthy fear of God. This is purifying and this is healthy what is taking place here. Their response is a godly response to have a healthy fear of the Lord. Of course, we don't have a fear that God's there just trying to nail us. It's a kind of fear that reminds us what is at stake. There's no middle ground and the stakes are eternal when it comes to being a Christian. It helps us to remember what is most important. And one more healthy kind of fear that it points out. I'm going to read from Jeremiah 32, it's a, uh, it's a fear, it's the kind of fear that takes place between a child and his father, a child that is loved by his father. Jeremiah 32, verses 38 to 41, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. That is a beautiful passage that is talking about the new covenant, the dynamics of the new covenant that God will have once Christ has come, and we know that he has come, and that we too can can know that he loves us and because he loves us he gives us that same sense of sobriety that same gravity that healthy fear that we can have we don't want to let our attitude towards the abundance of all the blessings that he's given to us lead us to being presumptuous about who god is this is serious business being a christian we enjoy each other's fellowship. We laugh with each other at, those, at that dinner table that's right over there. There are going to be people laughing and having a great time. But the business and the work that we are about ultimately and eternally is very serious business. May God give us one heart and one way that we may fear him forever for our own good. Let's pray. Lord thank you for the reminder of our calling that it is a real calling that it that it is legitimate that it has meat that it comes with requirements that you call us to live a godly life not just so that we can be good neighbors Lord you call us to obedience and the seriousness with which that call comes is sometimes forgotten we pray that this reminder would motivate us to live in a a way that pleases you and that it would also remind us of the great love you have for us by putting that fear in our hearts, a healthy fear of the God that loves us. In Christ's name, amen.